everyone, welcome to Poetry Says, I'm Alice. I have a question for you to start off with today. If I say the words war poetry, are you immediately sent into a panicked flashback about year 10, where you're sitting there waiting for the teacher to call on you and just hoping to God that you're going to have the right answer about what this one line means? Or are you thinking about a poem that heroically describes suffering and loss in a way that no other art form can. Well, my experience with war poetry was always the former until I did a free, another free online course through Yale. Um, I felt very special that I was doing an online course through Yale. And this particular week we were doing war poetry and we did a poem called Edelstrop by an English poet called Edward Thomas. Now, Edward Thomas is not necessarily thought of as a war poet, but he's kind of lumped in with them because he was writing around the time of the First World War and he died just as his first full-length collection was coming out. Uh, he was killed in 1917 at the Battle of Arras, so he had kind of written enough to fill a book and he was friends with Robert Frost and it was all shaping up to be this amazing poetic career and then he went off to war. So he is thought of as a war poet. And so I wanted to bring Edelstrop to you today because I'm wondering if this poem could still be relevant a hundred years on from World War One. And I've been wondering about that too because a couple of weeks ago here in London I went to a reading and the main reader had just published her second book of war poetry and this was all poetry around World War I, but from a 21st century standpoint. So she had visited the Somme and she had written an entire book about that experience and the way that it had shaped her view of her sons and her relationship with them. And it was very beautiful poetry. It was very precise and very honest and quite moving at times. But as I was walking home from this reading, I started having these really uncharitable thoughts. I started thinking, well, why are we adding to poetry about the First World War? Do we really need more poems about the First World War? And obviously, if you're going to think that way, then things start to fall apart because if you're not going to write about something that's already been written about, then we can't write any more love poems or any more sonnets or any more poems about grief. It's, it's not a productive way to think about things. But it brought me back to this poem, Edelstrop, and it made me think, is this still a poem that can speak to us in 2016? So a little bit about Edelstrop before I read the poem for you. So this is a little tiny town near Oxford. It's got 153 people in 2001, and in 2011, 120 people. So I'm not sure how many people are still living there now. But it's a very small place, and you'll get that sense when I read the poem to you. But even though it is small, there is something significant about it. There's something about Edelstrop that, for some reason, Edward Thomas latched onto, and he wrote this poem. So here goes, Edelstrop by Edward Thomas. Yes, I remember Edelstrop. The name, because one afternoon of heat, the express train drew up there unwantedly. It was late June. The steam hissed. Someone cleared his throat. No one left, and no one came on the bare platform. What I saw was Edelstrop, only the name, and willows, willow herb, and grass, and meadow sweet, and haycocks dry, 
no whit less still and lonely fair than the high cloudlets in the sky. And for that minute a blackbird sang, close by, and round him, mistier, farther and farther, all the birds of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. So you can tell immediately this is an extremely English poem. You've got the birds of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire singing at the end. You've got all this very stereotypically English countryside flora, willows, willow herb, haycocks. It couldn't be more English in some ways. So that's probably one of the first things you notice about it. And the other really significant thing that pops out at you is that this is a conversation the poem starts with the word yes. So the speaker is talking to someone else about this tiny little place called Edelstrop and this moment when they pass through there for some reason. There's a sense that something is happening elsewhere that overshadows the silence and the stillness in this poem. But if we didn't think of Thomas as a war poet, how would we know that this is a war poem? Well, I think there are a couple of little clues. One of them is that word unwantedly, which is sort of sitting there strangely at the end of the first stanza. When you look it up, it just means unusually. So the express train draws up at this tiny little station, but it's not what it usually does. And nobody leaves and nobody hops onto the train. It just sits there for a few minutes. Somebody clears his throat and it moves on. And then at the start of the last stanza, there's that phrase, and for that minute, a blackbird sang. So that minute is really significant to the speaker for some reason. Why is that? You're left wondering. What happens after this poem ends and the train moves on? What is it that was so significant later that makes Edelstrop meaningful to the speaker? So those are a few things that I think suggest the, the war going on around this poem. The other thing that I really like about this poem is that it articulates something that I often think about when you hear when you hear news of disasters or wars or catastrophes going on in the world is that the natural world, for lack of a better phrase, the the flora and the fauna around the speaker continues on despite the fact that something really significant is happening. So the blackbirds are singing, there's all this beautiful grass swaying in the breeze, the high cloudlets in the sky, and yet for the humans in the poem, it's very tense. It's very, there's a sense of your breath being held throughout the entire poem as if something is about to happen. So I just really like the way that Thomas includes both that sense of difficulty and also the sense of the natural world just continuing on blithely. So one of the ways I thought we could try to test whether this poem is still relevant to us today is what if we take it away from the English landscape, if that's even possible, just as a thought experiment, just to consider whether the poem needs to be about Edelstrop does it need to be about the birds of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire? Maybe it does, but it's an interesting way to think about it. What if this is a poem not about that particular place? What if it's a poem not written by a man, not written by somebody who was a soldier at the time? What if it's written by somebody who had to leave a certain place 
go to another place and along that journey there was this moment of significance to them. So just to follow that thought all the way through, I'll read it for you now without the place names in it. Bit of a heretical thing to do, but I'm going to give it a go and you can see what you think. Yes, I remember the name, because one afternoon of heat the express train drew up there unwantedly. It was late June. The steam hissed. Someone cleared his throat. No one left and no one came on the bare platform. What I saw was only the name and willows, willow herb and grass, and meadow sweet, and haycocks dry, no whit less still and lonely fair than the high cloudlets in the sky, and for that minute a blackbird sang, close by, and round him, mistier, farther and farther, all the birds. So that's my little experiment with Edelstrop. You might hate that, but um, I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting way to think about it, whether we can we can shift and change these things as, as time goes on. Now maybe another reason that war poetry sometimes rubs people up the wrong way is because there's a, an uncomfortable sense that this is an imagined past. This is a past that's been kind of molded and shaped into a form that looks heroic and beautiful and significant and meaningful when actually the reality is much, much more complicated. And in this poem in particular, especially the last two stanzas, there is this beautiful image of the English countryside coming through. But is there a danger of a poem like this creating a version of England that, is, that becomes idealised, I suppose, that is one-dimensional? Maybe that's taking it a little far, but this is something I've been thinking about a lot, just watching the news over here in London Watching the debate around the referendum here and the fallout that has kind of started to build since, since the referendum took place. And there seems to be a, a conversation going on here about the idea of England and whether this idealised England ever existed and whether it's something that could be returned to. I think that's so interesting. But as an Australian, I'm just kind of standing off to the side, just watching this conversation unfold and just, just wondering where it's going to go. So rather than offer my fairly uninformed commentary on that, I wanted to read to you just a couple of pages from this wonderful book that I read this year called H's for Hawk by Helen MacDonald. And Helen MacDonald is a Cambridge-based historian and she wrote this book, H's for Hawk, as an account of her life after her father died relatively young, relatively unexpectedly. And as a response to that, she started training this hawk. She buys a hawk up in Scotland. And uh, as the book goes on, things get kind of murky in terms of her identity and the hawk's identity. But this passage I'm going to read you is from towards the end of the book where things are a little bit calmer and Helen has trained up her hawk quite well and everything's going okay and she has this encounter with some people near where she's flying the hawk who's called Mabel and to me it kind of summed up this really interesting tension around the idea of England and the English countryside. So here we go this is from page 263 of H's for Hawk. We set off again homeward this time but now the rain in the air is harder 
and the rabbits are so close to their holes that Mabel's not able to get a foot to them before they disappear. After one hair's breadth miss in a rocky quarry hole by a bank of wild rose stems, I call her back and feed her up. She is tired. Beads of water spot her head and tiny eyelash feathers. We stroll back to the car park. I'm tired too, and glad to see people walking towards us. I've met them before, a retired couple from my mother's village, walking their white-muzzled terrier on a long lead. They're all wrapped up with scarves and snap-fastened country jackets, and their shoulders are set a little against the cold and wet. I meet them here quite often. I've always been delighted to see them. I don't know their names, and they don't know mine, though they know my hawk's called Mabel. I wave, and they stop and wave back. Hello, I say. Hello, how's the hawk, they ask. She's good, I say happily, but tired. She's been flying all over the place. It's beautiful out here today. I saw the deer. I went on, glad to have someone to tell. A big herd of them, dark-coated, down in the bottom of the valley. Yes, he says, the deer. Special, aren't they, those ones? Rare. We see them quite often. He's smiling. We're all enjoying our shared secrets of a place. She's nodding too. Aren't they beautiful, she says. We counted them once, didn't we? He nods. They're usually between 25 and 30. 30 exactly, I say. They're a lovely sight. I agree. She tucks her scarf more tightly around her as a squall begins. Her husband nods vigorously, rain darkening his shoulders. A herd of deer, he says, beaming. Then his expression folds into something I don't recognise. Doesn't it give you hope? He says suddenly. Hope? Yes, he says. Isn't it a relief that there's still things like that? A real bit of old England still left, despite all these immigrants coming in. I don't know what to say. His words hang, and all the awkwardness is silence. The leaves rattle in the hazel stems. And I nod a goodbye, sad as hell. And my hawk and I trudge home through the rain. Such an amazing book. As I was reading it, I kept stopping and uh, reading out paragraphs to my partner, who <laughs> was a little bit confused as to why I was suddenly obsessed with hawks. I definitely recommend it to you. And Helen MacDonald is actually a poet as well, as you can probably tell by just the amazing care and clarity that's there in her prose. So thanks for listening, everyone. You can chat to me on Twitter at Poetry Says, and you can find more episodes online at poetrysays.com.